This morning I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We are going to step away from our verse-by-verse study of Matthew's Gospel for a few weeks here. I want to address a very important matter concerning our church, and frankly any church for that matter, and that is, what is really the heartbeat of this church? What is the heartbeat, or should be, the heartbeat of any New Testament church? And certainly, therefore, what is the heartbeat of the pastor? Because that really dictates so much of what goes on in a church. And there's two reasons why I want to address this issue this morning. First of all, we have a number of new people here at Calvary Bible Church, and we rejoice in that. We have many, many more around the world that listen to us through the Internet, many People, therefore, have come to us and listened to us from very different church paradigms, very different ministry paradigms. And many times people wonder, well, what's this church really all about? You're different than the church we were from or whatever. And so I thought I would step aside and talk about this issue of Calvary Bible Church and my heart, the church's heart and and even the, even the concept of ministry, because that's a rather oblique term these days. It can mean a thousand different things to a thousand people. And so it's important to clarify what we do and why we do it here at Calvary Bible Church. But secondly, I'm concerned about the distraction of numerical growth. Now, that's a wonderful distraction to have. But if you're not careful, it can cause you to lose your focus on the things that are really important There's much excitement here at Calvary Bible Church over the past few years with the new people that have been coming. Uh, We continue to expand our facilities and ministries to accommodate the people. It's wonderful to see people coming to Christ as Savior and seeing people move from even other parts of the country to be a part of our fellowship here. And then also as we look at the burgeoning international interest uh, in what's happening here because of uh, of the media. We, we rejoice in all of that, but if we're not careful, even though there's much on the horizon for us and we can enjoy many of these things, if we're not careful, this time of enormous blessing that the Lord is giving us can become a distraction from the things that are really important. And I'm concerned that we not become spiritually complacent, that we not become proud, that we not Forsake our first love of the Lord Jesus, as did the church at Ephesus, as you will recall. We don't want to allow activity to eclipse our spiritual growth and our responsibility here at the church. Bottom line, friends, I'm far more concerned about your secret devotion to God and your growth in the grace and the knowledge of Christ than I am attracting new people to Calvary Bible Church. You know, that's up to the Lord to do that, and he does that in his own timing, as we've seen. But we must be careful that we don't lose sight of the most fundamental elements of our calling as a church and certainly my calling as your pastor. There is an enormous amount of confusion and I might say unnecessary confusion about what is the church today. You have a hard time finding people that can answer the question, how do you define a New Testament church? What should be the non-negotiable components of that church? 
And certainly there is a wide range of opportunities for various preferences and various expressions. But there are some things that must be here. And certainly as you look at churches today, you see a range from from liturgy to to legalism, from a social club type of church to a political activist type of a church, from the user-friendly, seeker-sensitive mindset to the whole purpose-driven deal that is so popular today, all the way to the cultic churches of Benny Hinn and some of those extremists that are out there. And now we have the even the emerging church that is probably one of the most dangerous heresies to to somehow slither into the evangelical circles. And I'm not even sure I would call it evangelical, but that is where uh, people are embracing the madness of postmodernism, which is nothing more than just developing a pluralistic mindset, a pluralistic apostasy. But all these people are called community of faith. Even people that aren't Christian are called community of faith. And so what do you do? Where do you go? And it's crucial to clarify this issue, to clarify the role of the pastor. And as you understand my role, and hopefully as I understand it, then you will call me to be accountable to that role. And likewise, this will become your marching orders as well. So where does the pastor turn? Which guru do we go to? Which best-selling author? Which seminar am I supposed to go to? I get them every week in the mail. People wanting me to go to this seminar and that seminar. I'm constantly bombarded with all the church growth information. And usually what I do is make sure I understand kind of where they're coming from and make sure I don't do those things because I find out that for the most part, those are absolutely antithetical to what God teaches in his word. So we can find all kinds of programs and formulas to attract people, but that's not what the church is all about. So are there some definitive answers? Well, of course, it's found in the handbook that God has given us in his word, in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament. Jesus says, I will build my church. And he has given us enormous amounts of materials to help us understand our role in that glorious promise. So this morning, I want to address really the heartbeat of the church determined by seven ruling convictions of a pastor's heart. Seven ruling convictions. And we want to look this morning at a faithful shepherd that was advising a church that had gone astray so we can discern the will of the Lord with respect to how we should remain faithful to the New Testament principles of the church. So I would ask you to look at Colossians chapter 1. And before we look at verses 24 through 29, may I remind you a bit of the context here. This, of course, is one of Paul's epistles. He he wrote it from a Roman prison sometime around A.D. 60 to 62, wrote it to the church at Colossae. That church was founded by Epaphras, who was saved under Paul's preaching in Ephesus. This uh, letter was also read to another church close by, to the church at Laodicea. These were cities in the ancient Roman province of Asia that is now modern Turkey. And Colossae was an interesting place. It was a mix of Jews and Gentiles producing a dangerous mix of pagan mysticism and Jewish legalism, if you can imagine that. And they 
for, for the most part in that area, denied the humanity of Christ as well as the deity of Christ. This was certainly the beginnings of, of ancient Gnosticism, uh, that secret uh, ascended knowledge that supposedly is, is beyond Scripture and, and we all need to become enlightened. I mean, you see elements of that today in the New Age movement and even in a lot of the mystical circles of the extreme ends of the charismatic movement, Pentecostal movement. Uh, certainly you see it in Freemasonry, uh, the Shriners, all of these types of things. So this was what was going on there. And when you mix all this together with Jewish legalism, for example, they, they would believe that you had to add circumcision uh, to salvation and you needed to practice the ceremonies and the rituals and so on. They, they worshipped angels. And with all this mystical craziness going on, Epaphras now is distraught. He's seeing this church just, just fall apart around him. And he goes a long distance now to a Roman prison to seek help from the beloved apostle. And so Paul has just finished a section here refuting false doctrine. And now he instructs about, uh, frankly, a biblical philosophy of ministry. And here we are able to peer into the heart of a faithful shepherd, beginning in verse 24. Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, I've divided this text into seven ruling convictions of a pastor, seven divine mandates that must drive his ministry and therefore become the heartbeat, the engine of the church. And anything that jeopardizes these convictions, anything that would any way interfere with these purposes must be discarded, must be jettisoned. And so if you want to understand the heartbeat of this church and certainly of this pastor, this would be kind of the, the, the core values that would drive all that we do here. Let me give them to you very quickly and then we will examine them individually. A pastor must be, number one, consumed with God's glory. Number two, content with his suffering. Number three, convinced of his calling. Number four, controlled by one message. Number five, confident with one method. Number six, committed to one end. And number seven, confirmed by one power. So here are the parameters of my ministry, the, the guiding principles that I believe are found in the word of God that will result in God's blessing. And dear friends, if they're not there, if they're not there in a pastor and these things are not there in a church, God will not be there either. Let me give you an example of that. Five of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 
got distracted and lost sight of these very principles. You will recall that the church at Ephesus, according to Revelation 2.5, left their first love. And, and um, Jesus said to them, repent or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of his place. Well, they didn't repent and he removed the lampstand. They had everything going for them. All of their ministries, if you study it, you'll see everything was in place. But they forsook the most basic fundamental value, and that was their love for the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the implications that go with that. The church at Pergamum was the church of compromise. God called them to repent. He said, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. Likewise, the church at Thyatira, they tolerated the woman Jezebel, which, by the way, was a pseudonym for a woman who influenced the church. By the way, whenever women are in leadership in a church, that is a mark of defection. And this was a woman that taught false doctrine. The text talks about the deep things of Satan. And uh, there was also immorality going on. And, and in that text, he says that I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and so on. And I'm going to bring great tribulation upon the church and all that follow her. And they didn't repent. And he did what he promised. The church at Sardis was also a church that lost its perspective, lost its way. It was what we might call a dead social club. In Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1, we read God saying, I know you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. And then there was the church at Laodicea, a church that was cold and indifferent and, frankly, apostate. In Revelation 3, beginning in verse 15, we read, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And later on, he goes on to say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. Well, folks, we don't want the Lord on the outside of the church knocking to get in to have fellowship with us. We want him on the inside. We do not want to unwittingly fall into the same pit of spiritual apathy and apostasy and arrogance. So the first ruling conviction of a pastor's heart and certainly of the heart of the Apostle Paul our great model would be that he is, number one, consumed with God's glory. Beloved, this must be the constant theme of our conversations. This must be the constant wonder of our heart, namely the exalting of the glory and excellency of Christ. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, 
We see more of Paul's passion. If we were to study it, we would see that he exalts the character of Christ. Remember the people, many of them were denying the deity of Christ. In verse 15 and following, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, referring to Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Folks, there is nothing more important than God and His glory, and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So He must be at the core of all that we do. By the way, Paul gave the same emphasis in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, where he's desiring that all men see the glory of Christ. And there Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So this is where ministry begins, dear friends, because this is where salvation begins. Because all have sinned and fallen short of what? Of the glory of God. So therefore, evangelism and discipleship must be our consuming passion because when we see people come to Christ and grow in Christ, then God gets more glory. So we must be consumed with that. And anything that distracts from that must be jettisoned. True believers, we know from the Word of God, long for the sincere milk of the Word. 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us that. And it's sad to see so many people today starving to experience the, the, the glory of God. And friends, that's never going to happen apart from, as Paul says, the giving of the knowledge of the glory of God. You see, this is the passion and the prayer of the preacher, that you will know him and grow in him. And therefore, God is glorified when I teach you and when you learn the things that are taught and you live them out. It's very simple. My role is to literally engage your mind with truth, to challenge your intellect, to help you to understand the truth so that you can learn it and apply it and therefore obey it. Notice Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 1. You're right there, I'm sure. Look, beginning in verse 9, at the end there, he says that he's praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me stop for a second there. The word filled there in the original language is a term that was used to describe wind filling a sail. Isn't that precious? He's praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And dear friends, every time we get together, it is the prayer of my heart and the commitment of everything I say to somehow fill your sails with the wind of truth, if you will. So that you will be able to sail the seas of life and ultimately find safe harbor in the glorious harbor of heaven. And so he's saying that I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So first, a pastor and therefore his congregation must be consumed with God's glory. Secondly, he must be content with his suffering. Notice verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You see, Paul rejoiced in his sufferings. He was content with his sufferings. He, you see, friends, joy is the fruit of humble commitment. If I can put it this way, when you think of the Apostle Paul, Paul never lost his joy. It, it is despite all of the horrors that were perpetrated upon him in his ministry, he met every child with thankful prayer. And he refused to let circumstances rob him of his joy. You know, sometimes ministry is fun. Matter of fact, most of the time it's fun. Sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it doesn't go well. And all you have to do is be around the church, and you'll understand that. But... Like the Apostle Paul, we must all learn, and certainly the pastor, as Paul said in Philippians 4.11, to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You see, you cannot let other people and you cannot let circumstances or even your emotions rule you. I mean, think about this. The Apostle Paul here is writing from a Roman prison. We don't hear one hint of bitterness or complaining or long time uh, I, I should say long-term, uh, overwhelming, uh, debilitating, uh, whining and discouragement. You don't see that. No long face here. Rather, he's willing to just suffer in silence and to cry in private and to never allow personal pain to distract him from his ministry. And that must be the heart of a pastor as well. Very often, a pastor's Mountaintops and valleys must be enjoyed and endured in the privacy of his own heart before the Lord. Because there are more weightier things to deal with that you need not be concerned with. Therefore, my problems or even sometimes my joys. Well, Paul didn't tell Epaphras, oh, I'm just too depressed to respond to you, Epaphras. I'm sorry they're having problems, but look at my situation. Look how terrible it is. I instead am content with my sufferings. So we must be careful that we never be ruled by our emotions, but rather we must be ruled by our minds, by a well-informed conscience, one that is informed by the knowledge of God found in His Word. So often I have found that if, if you're ruled by your feelings, you will eventually succumb to fatigue and then you will succumb to compromise. And then all you want to do is just get along with everybody. And then what takes over is this idea of tolerance. Let's just be tolerant to anything and everything. It doesn't matter what you believe. We're just, we just all want to get along and, and just love Jesus, so to speak. Well, friends... That's not what God has called me to do. And if you know me and I know you, 
we are not going to be a church of tolerance. In fact, God has told me, I want you to preach the word in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not. And most of the time, it's not going to be popular. You know, it's interesting. The great reformers in Scotland were called warrior preachers because literally what they would do is whenever they found error, they would march to that front and attack it with truth. In fact, they called themselves the guardians of the truth. Well, that mindset is very, very different than the mindset of neo-evangelicalism today. But dear friends, that is the call of the pastor and the call of the church. We are to be the pillar, Paul said, and the support of the what? Of the truth. And frankly, tolerance is the enemy of truth. Tolerance is the rallying cry of the apostate. Because error demands tolerance, but truth demands scrutiny. There's nothing worse than a pusillanimous pastor sucking his thumb because people don't like him or because somehow what he's preaching isn't popular and he starts to whine and carry on and find out the latest guru's book to make sure everybody likes him so that the church will grow. That's That's just completely antithetical to what God has called us to do. As pastors, we, and as people, we are to, frankly, suck it up. Get back into the battle. We march on our knees. God has given me and you a sword, not a pacifier. And therefore, we must wield the sword with with skill and with great precision, with strength and with honor and with power. And therefore, Paul rejoiced even in the midst of his adversities, knowing that he was doing God's work, God's way. And even though he was a prisoner in Rome, he knew that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and for that he rejoiced. You know, I have found that, and I've said this before, the, the pastorate in particular, and any pastors that might be listening to me, certainly I want to address you for a moment, and anybody that's in some form of kind of visible leadership within the body of Christ. The pastorate is perhaps the most violent place on planet Earth. Because our calling is to proclaim and protect the very message that put our master on the cross. You understand. And as messengers of the gospel and guardians of the truth, we become the lightning rod of sinners offended by the truth. In a society that has gone mad with sin. And I have found that some people will really love me. And a few more people will like me. And most people will disdain me. And you have to get used to that. That's how it is in a fallen world. And you must be, therefore, content with your suffering. Satan sees us as one of the number one targets. His primary purpose is to oppose God and establish his own kingdom. And so Satan, as the father of lies, in his genius will cleverly seduce people with false doctrine and errant philosophies that would somehow compromise our message and rob us of our joy. And as a pastor, I've always got to be on guard for that. 
And likewise, Satan, as the evil one, will stir up ridicule and slander against pastors, against leaders. And as the roaring lion that's trying to seek who he's going to devour, he's going to try to seduce me and others, all of us for that matter, into personal sin and moral compromising by laying snares in the very well-worn paths of our lusts and our lifestyles and our besetting sins. So it's a battle. But regardless of the persecution or the extent of the suffering, we find great joy deep within our hearts because we do it, as Paul says in verse 24, for your sake. We do it for your sake. You see, pastors have to have a deep, abiding love for the Lord and His body. And that's you. And that's what drives Him. And that's what should drive each of us in the body of Christ, in the family of God. In verse 24, he says, and in my flesh, referring to physical pain, he says, I do, I do, do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me stop for a second. Make sure you understand this. He's not saying that there was somehow anything deficient or lacking in the atoning work of Christ here. What Christ endured was perfect. It completely satisfied the justice of God. But rather, what he's saying here is that the enemies of Christ remain unsatisfied with their hatred of Christ, and therefore we become recipients of their wrath. That's what he's saying. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 5, that the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Let me digress for a moment so you understand a little bit more perhaps of, of my worldview and certainly other pastors who, who share my conviction of the Word of God. Dear friends, I look at life and certainly as, at ministry as a war. We are at war. And if you want just a fundamental definition of ministry, ministry is engaging the enemy in the battle for truth. And it can be manifested in a myriad of different ways. And the, the weapons of our armory are the word of God and prayer. The word of God, which is sharper than any two edged sword, which is able to pierce to the very core of who we are. And those of us who have wielded the sword in the most ferocious battles for truth will all agree that the edges of this old sword never show any sign of dulling. The steel shows no sign of weakness. And as we face the enemy in the strength of prayer, armed with the sword of the Spirit, and as the Spirit empowers our sword, we are able to parry the blows of the enemy with absolute perfect precision. And our glorious shield and buckler empowers us, especially the feeble words that come out of our mouths, with, with such strength that we literally assault the devil in his own kingdom of darkness. And with a supernatural violence, we are able to, to pluck people out of his wicked clutches out of his claws to take men and women and boys and girls and have them see the truth and the Spirit of God come along and transform them 
And they become new creatures in Christ. And suddenly the fiend, that hideous fiend, is robbed of anyone that would do his will. And all of this is because we understand that there is a war that's going on. And if as Christians you don't think there's a war, and you're kind of marching through life, well, you're not marching, you're kind of skipping through life, whistling Jesus loves me, oh, isn't everything, you're going to fall. You're going to suffer because Satan and his minions and the world around us will see you as a naive, ignorant sucker. And you'll fall to temptation and you'll fall to error. Our army is the church. We are the ecclesia, the called out and the chosen. And again, we march on our knees. We're empowered and we are emboldened by the Lord of hosts. Friends, you must understand that that our strength is in our weakness. And we advance to the front by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, wielding the sword that he has given us to strengthen us. That has to be your mindset and certainly the mindset of a pastor. Charles Spurgeon, many years ago, was speaking to some pastors and he published this particular quote just prior to his death. I want you to listen to the heart of this warrior. He says, and I quote, my topics have to do with our life work, with the crusade against error and sin in which we are engaged. I hope that every man here wears the wears the red cross on his heart and is pledged to do and dare for Christ and for his cross and never be satisfied till Christ's foes are routed and Christ himself is satisfied. Our fathers used to speak of, quote, the cause of God for truth. And it is for this that we bear arms, the few against the many, the feeble against the mighty, all to be found good soldiers of Jesus Christ, end quote. So a faithful pastor will never be silenced by suffering or never compromise his message to somehow please people. Instead, he will continue to boldly march into battle and rejoice in having been considered worthy to suffer for the master. In fact, he will be content with his suffering, which, by the way, is always an evidence of the Holy Spirit being active in our lives, right? And giving us assurance of salvation. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.14, if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you are what? You are blessed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the pastor must be consumed with God's glory and content with his suffering, but thirdly, convinced of his calling. This is probably the most important conviction because this is the one that will pull a pastor through times of great adversity. Notice verse 25. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Notice he says he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. You see, he was an apostle by divine appointment. At the end of verse 23, he even says, I, Paul, was made a minister of the gospel. Well, what is the stewardship he's talking about? 
Actually, this is a word, oikonomia, it's, it's a compound word in the original language. The, the term oikos is the word house, and nemo is the word for manage, and that's where we put it together, you're managing a house, or stewardship. And a steward, therefore, is someone who manages someone else's property or possessions. And so he was telling these confused people at the church of Colossae, that I am your divinely appointed steward. I am a steward of the mysteries of God, he said in 1 Corinthians 4.1. The administrator of spiritual treasures has been entrusted to me for your benefit. Now, certainly this was important for Paul to establish his authority and his credibility. And likewise, this is the calling and responsibility of pastors. And we must understand this. I, for example, have been called and gifted by God to be the steward of the Lord Jesus Christ to manage the household of God, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says, here at Calvary Bible Church. That's what God's called me to do. Very simple. Well, what does that mean that I do? Well, in terms of spiritual understanding and teaching and protection and so on, I, I, I am to give oversight has nothing to do with the physical things. I'm just one voice of many. When it comes to what type of chairs to pick out or where to put an office or any of those types of things, you know, that's up to you all and I'll give you my input. But that, that's not where my authority is. Mine is in the realm of the spiritual. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 1.9, uh, an elder must be one that holds fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's my calling. And so Paul is saying that he was made a minister. Now, you've got to remember, folks, this was not his idea at first. Remember? I mean, he hated Christians. He murdered Christians. And it wasn't until the glorious grace of God blinded him with the light of truth that he could somehow finally see the light of the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus. And for this reason, he would say in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 16, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I have a stewardship entrusted to me, he says. And what was his duty before the Lord? Well, back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25. There at the end, he says that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Folks, that's what drives me. That's what should drive you. The preaching of the Word of God. And this leads me to the fourth ruling conviction of a pastor's heart. He must be controlled by one message. Controlled by one message. What is that? That I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. You see, I have but one textbook, dear friends, and it's right here. The Bible. And this is why I'm committed to expository preaching, to unpacking the truth one verse at a time. That's why you will not hear the typical kind of one, two, three method of preaching that is so common in our culture today. One verse, two jokes, and three stories. That's not how it's going to be. In fact, in order to give you a little more insight into this, I've copied something that I wrote for our mission statement on our website. 
Part of our mission statement says that we exist to equip the saints through expository preaching and teaching. And I go on to explain that. Let me just read this to you so that that you understand it. I say that saints cannot be equipped for godly living and service apart from precise theology. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. This is the goal of expository preaching and teaching. The term exposit literally means to expound or explain in a detailed manner. Expository preaching is therefore a doctrinal proclamation of the word of God derived from an exegetical process that is concerned only with the revelation of God, not the wisdom of man, and therefore carefully conveys the God intended meaning of a text, passionately applying that meaning to the contemporary issues of life with an internal zeal and authority that cannot be extinguished. Finally, I go on to say that although this kind of preaching and teaching is rare in contemporary evangelicalism, since this was the method exemplified in the Bible, and I give many texts to validate that, and since we have a divine mandate to, quote, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2, we believe that this is the God-ordained method and we remain committed to it. So, folks, for that reason, when you come, you're not going to hear book reviews or psychobabble or, or jokes or, or political or social speeches. You're, you're not going to be a part of some lifeless mechanical liturgy. You're not going to hear an evangelistic message on how to get saved every time we get together because God has told me that I, that I am to preach. I'm, I'm not to shrink from declaring to preach the whole purpose of God. Acts 20, verse 27. So from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to the cross, from heaven to hell, from regeneration to glorification, the whole purpose of, of God, whatever the text is, that's what you're going to hear. I'm not commissioned to be an entertainer. I'm not commissioned to somehow help you find healing for your diseases. I'm not here to help you learn how to manipulate God so you, you can become wealthy or more successful. I'm just here to preach the word. And that's why, again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Beloved, please understand. For me, it's, it's like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. The word of God is like a burning fire in my bones. And the Spirit of God has ignited that fire and only He can extinguish it. And so therefore, as the Apostle Paul, I will be controlled by one message. Verse 25 at the end, the preaching of the Word of God. He goes on to define it in verse 26. That is the mystery that has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. The mysterion. It's the, now, the, the mystery here, it, it's not some secret, mystical Bible code, some enigmatic philosophy only known to a certain group of people, to certain elite initiates. But rather, this refers to the revealed will and purpose of God given to all believers found in the New Testament. It's now manifested, he says, to all the saints. The end of verse 27, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, folks, this is the mystery of the ages that had been veiled for generations in, in symbolism 
and, and, and ritual and ceremonies and in the law and in the prophecies. But now it, now it has become realized. Christ came. He died. He rose again. That's historical fact. And he now lives within us through the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence within us. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. This is the only basis for our hope for eternal glory. So it is this glorious truth, this ineffable hope that drives every message of a faithful pastor. So therefore, he is not only consumed by the glory of God, content with his suffering, convinced of his calling, controlled by one message, but fifthly, confident with one method. Here it is in verse 28. And we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. This is great. In an economy of words, the Spirit of God gives me my job description here and in many other places. And basically three things. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to proclaim, admonish, and teach. Very simple. You see, folks, please understand, I don't have to go to some church growth seminar or listen to certain church growth polls or somehow learn the latest techniques on how to draw a crowd to know what to do when I come before you. Nor do I have to get on the Internet or send in, as many pastors do, and have other people send me an outline on what to preach, on how to frankly dumb down a sermon so that anybody and everybody can feel happy and joyful and no one will be offended. I don't have to buy outlines complete with PowerPoint and skits and object lessons and all these other things that you can purchase. I, I, I don't have to learn how to make milkshakes on stage or where I can get a hold of an Elvis impersonator to come and somehow get you all excited about Jesus. I don't have to do all of that. I don't have to find places where we can find these repetitious, superficial praise choruses so everybody can sway back and forth with their arms up and their eyes shut and get all emotional and call that worship. Not to saying that at times that can't be worship. But folks, what God has called me to do is be confident with one method, and that is to proclaim, admonish, and teach. You see, you've got to understand, God is not interested in us drawing a crowd. He wants to build a church. And there is a huge difference between a crowd and a church. Anybody can draw a crowd. But only God can build a church through his men, his way. Dr. Culbertson, a dear friend of mine, the former president of Moody Bible Institute, who's now gone to be with the Lord, he said it so well, and I quote, What you win them with, you win them to. What you win them with, you win them to. If you win people with entertainment, you'll win them to entertainment. If you win people with cotton candy sermonettes, you're going to win them too, cotton candy sermonettes. If you win people with promises that God never made, you're going to win them too, promises that God never made. You see, folks, God has called us to win you to biblical truth so that you can worship the Father in spirit and in truth, so that you can be one to the Lord Jesus Christ and so on. 
So we proclaim, we admonish, and we teach. What does this mean? Very simple. We proclaim. This really refers to the public and private preaching of the word. We admonish. The word is nutheteo. It has more of a negative con- connotation. And it refers to, to a pastor counseling and, and confronting and warning people of sin, of coming judgment. It has the idea of instructing people in truth and correcting people in their errors and encouraging them to repentance. By the way, we saw this in Paul's ministry in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 31. He said, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And thirdly, we are to teach. And this is the positive connotation here, which literally means to educate others with Bible doctrine and link that Bible doctrine, the precise truth of the word of God, precise theology to your everyday living, practical admonitions. You see, you've got to know the truth before you can live the truth. And this is why we have that the great mandate in the Great Commission from the Lord Jesus Christ for all of us to make disciples of all nations. He goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And likewise, as believers, we are commanded in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing, the same thing, one another. So it's not just my job, it's yours as well. So a faithful pastor will be Confident in one method, proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching, it says, with all wisdom, which means with, with, with practical discernment. See, this is more than just covering material. This is more than a pastor just disseminating theological facts or just facilitating discussions. But a pastor must make the word of God come alive so that people understand it and wear it out. In their everyday life. They wear it when they leave this place. So the people can develop a spiritual and theological immune system. To be able to protect them from the the virus that's out there of, of temptation and error and so on. And why do we do this? Well, because number five here, we are committed to one end. We are committed to one end. I should say this is number six, I believe, committed to one end. And what is that? The end of verse 28, that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is what it's all about. What does complete mean? It means mature, perfect, to be like Christ. That's our ultimate goal. You see, folks, spiritual maturity is determined by how much we act like Christ. It has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian. You see, it's not so much... How much theology you know, but how much theology you live. This is the goal of Calvary Bible Church. This is the the goal of of your pastor. This is my duty. Remember in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, we read that Christ gave some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And again, practically speaking, anything that gets in the way of this has to be jettisoned. This is the constant task of the elders of the church to find out what helps this, what hinders this. 
what is needed, what must be pursued. But what's tragic in our world today, very few Christians want anything to do with a church whose pastor is consumed with God's glory, content with his suffering, convinced of his calling, controlled by one very unpopular message, confident with one very unpopular method, committed to one end that many times produces temporal suffering mixed with inexpressible joy. So how how can you possibly do this? How, how, How can anyone ever endure this kind of exhaustive work, and I'm not talking just about me, I'm talking about all of you that are engaged in this, because we're all together, part of this body. Well, he must be, seven, number seven, confirmed by one power. Verse 29, And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You see, friends, we are regenerated and, 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 and rejuvenated and strengthened and sustained by His power. Apart from it, we could never, as Paul says here, labor or strive. Labor, by the way, in the original language, means to work to the point of utter exhaustion. And strive is the word agonizomai. We get our word agonized from that. And it's the picture here of an athlete that's in view. It's an athlete that's tirelessly exerting himself to win a race or to overpower his enemy in a wrestling match or whatever it may be. You see, friends, effective ministry is always one that will not allow itself to be bullied. A pastor cannot allow himself to be bullied. It's one that will not turn tail and run when the battle ensues. Instead, it's got to be one that perseveres. And when the the persecution tries to beat him down, he will not become like a sniveling Elijah and run and hide under a juniper tree, afraid of some painted up floozy by the name of Jezebel. You can't do that. You have to get back into the battle. And by God's power and by his grace, you can. Because our power is not in the flesh, but in the Holy Spirit. His power, he says, which mightily works within me. Works literally means it is effective. It is powerful. And this is the secret to spiritual power. Well, as together we enjoy the riches of God's grace here in in this rich season of blessing at Calvary Bible Church, may we all remember these seven ruling convictions of a pastor. May these also be your ruling convictions in your life and ministry to be consumed by God's glory, content with your suffering, convinced of your calling, controlled by one message, confident with one method, committed to one end, and confirmed by one power. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in these wonderful truths. May we live them to your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.